0: What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the (laughs) hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about?
1: Hi, I'm Daniel Pletka. I'm Mark Teason. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On. Mark, what the hell is going on? What the
0: hell is going on is we are in the middle of a record crime wave. Homicide rates rose in 22 major cities last year. Twelve of those cities broke annual homicide records. There are carjackings left, right, and center. There were two Hill staffers that were held up at gunpoint in front of the Heritage Foundation the other day. I know that in my community in Old Town, Alexandria, a woman had her car stolen at the gas station that's like 10 blocks from my house. And when I go to get gas now, there's a sign pasted below where you pay that says, please lock your car and take your keys because of the crime wave. This is spreading all across the country. These things are happening. People that are carjackings, there are murders going on, and it's out of control. And we got to do something about it. Danny, what do you think?
1: Look, the data backs you up 100%. There's an Economist YouGov poll from the end of January. And the question is, in the last year, would you say crime in the country has increased, decreased, or stayed about the same? Increased a lot, 47%. Increased a little, 21%. Stayed about the same, 18%. Decreased a little, 4%. Decreased a lot, 1%. That's a problem there. And... What I don't understand is why, given this data, given how widespread the crime is, you talk about, you know, obviously everybody talks about their own community. We saw two officers of the law murdered in cold blood in New York at the end of January. Cops are being assaulted at unprecedented rates. But underneath that, there is crime against victims, victims who disproportionately are in poorer neighborhoods, victims who come from marginalized communities. I don't understand why, despite the fact that the public sees this, the public sees this poll after poll after poll. The government is like, uh, you know, these are not the droids you're looking for.
0: So Jen Psaki was just on TV the other day and she was mocking Fox News for covering this, right? She said, well, I'm looking at my TV screen here and there's MSNBC and they're covering this and there's CNN and they're covering this and there's Fox News, crime and its consequences. Who covers that? It's like an alternate universe. It's like, yeah, there's an alternate universe and you're living in it. (laughs) Americans are experiencing this all over the country. Can you imagine the White House press secretary mocking a news organization for actually covering this story?
1: I can. And I think it's right. Look, you know, you and I have talked to a bunch of people about what the problem is in the White House and why it is so detached. But David Leonhard from The New York Times, others, again, not Republicans, not the Republican National Committee talking about the White House being in some sort of strange bubble in which it believes that talking about climate change instead of talking about people's security, instead of talking about immigration, is the right choice. And for me, I think that the issue here is that if we don't talk about crime, not talking about it is racism. Everybody wants to ascribe racism to everything that everybody does. But the reality is that you see, yes, absolutely, disproportionately the incarcerated are Black and Brown men, but disproportionately the victims are people from their own communities. The victims of crime are Black people, Brown people, Hispanics, and The fact that we are willing to let this go seems to me such an injustice to people who actually need the police. They need the goddamn police there in their communities. Knocking on doors, walking down halls, doing what used to in the good old days be called the broken windows theory of policing. I don't understand how we went from being a country that believed in those sort of things to being the country that we became last year.
0: Well, so being the country who, you know, after nine eleven, the police and the firefighters were all our heroes, and all of a sudden, in two decades, they become the enemy. And if you look at, I, I cited the statistics about a dozen cities breaking their annual homicide records. Well, what do those communities have in common? They've defunded the police. Minneapolis cut $8 million from its police budget. Oakland, $14.6 million. Portland, $15 million. Philadelphia, $33 million. New York cut $1 billion from its police budget and removed 2,500 officers from the streets. If you do that, you're going to see more crime. And then the other problem we have is that you know, with all the demonization of the police, they're leaving the police departments in droves. NPR had a story. There's been a 45% increase in police retirements and a 20% increase in resignations, while police hiring has dropped 5% nationwide. And a lot of these cities, what they're doing, the politicians who don't want to go ahead and defund the police, what they're doing is they're pocketing the savings from police officers by not replacing them when they retire or resign. So like Seattle reduced its police budget by $7.7 million by pocketing the salary savings from 270 officers who left. Chicago's eliminated quietly 400 police positions. Los Angeles, 200 officer positions. As I said, New York, 2,500 officer positions. What do you think is going to happen when you take that many officers off the street nationwide? You're going to have a nationwide surge in crime.
1: In 2020, murders in the United States spiked more than 27 percent. That's the largest percent increase in 60 years. And last year they went up again. And, you know, look, let's not pretend that we don't understand what was behind this. The George Floyd protests, the protests about police killings, the very, very celebrated cases where police have committed crimes. And I am completely down with seeing them prosecuted and they have been prosecuted there has been justice done because they besmirch the good name of police all over the country. But they are not representative of police all over the country. And what I don't get.
0: Just like happening. soldiers who commit war crimes are not representative of the United States military. And that's a completely uncontroversial statement. Every American, most, almost every American would agree with that, except for a small fraction of the left. So why do we not have the same presumption for police officers?
1: Right. And, you know, again, no one wants to give a pass to these guys. No one wants to give a pass to somebody who storms into an apartment and shoots an innocent woman in her bed. No one wants to give a pass to somebody who kneels on somebody's neck and kills them, doesn't let them breathe. No one wants to give a pass to that. But the notion that somehow the police are the enemy of the people who they are sworn to protect has become a part of society. And I am sort of pushed to almost laughing about the notion that they are meant to be replaced with social workers. I am delighted by the idea that if some guy is beating up the shit out of his wife, okay, that he probably needs to go to talk to a social worker. But my feeling is someone needs to stop him from beating the shit out of his wife first, I don't think you and I could walk into the most democratic of democratic towns, the most underprivileged corner of America into a public housing development and say, hey, ma'am, I know you're having some trouble with your husband. Do you want the cops to come and help you? Or would you like a social worker? You and I know what the answer is.
0: No doubt. Here's another thing. We've talked about local cities who are defunding the police and pulling police off the streets. The Biden administration is doing the same thing. So in 2020, when this crime wave was really taking off, the Trump Justice Department launched something called Operation Legend, which was named for a four-year-old boy who was killed by a wayward bullet in his home while he was sleeping in his bed in Kansas City. And they deployed federal officers to aid local law enforcement across the country in nine cities, arrested more than 6,000 criminals, carjackers, drug traffickers, violent criminals, 467 for homicide took firearms off the street, took drugs off the street. And guess what? Joe Biden's one of his first acts in office was when he came into office in the start of February. He ended Operation Legend, just cut it off. So now you got the mayor of Chicago, which, by the way, has just suffered the most violent year it's experienced in a quarter century, saying we need federal help for our law enforcement. We'll talk to the guy who just cut off the federal help. (laughs) They literally stopped the deployment of 6000 officers to nine cities to help local law enforcement police their streets. Has anyone asked Joe Biden in this press conference? Why did you cancel Operation Legend? Do you feel at all responsible for the crime wave and the fact that you took federal officers off the streets who were helping local law enforcement crack down on this crime? No one asked him that.
1: No one asks them that because in Jen Psaki's neighborhood, there's no crime. And at the White House, he's got a bunch of law enforcement looking after him. It is a sort of a, a naked disregard for. The people who need government the most, not the people who can hire private security for their Beverly Hills communities, not those people, not the Upper West Side, where they don't have to worry as much about crime because they can just cross the street when they see someone who looks suspicious. It's the people who really need them, who they have betrayed the most. And but you know what, Danny?
0: It may take the fact that that's changing, right, to finally change this, because the people in power are the ones who live in those neighborhoods. And so they live on the Upper West Side. They don't live in the crime infested neighborhoods. They live in the nice neighborhoods in D.C. And when you're starting to see more of this crime happening on the Upper West Side, when you're starting to see people getting held up on Capitol Hill, when you're starting to see people being carjacked at gas stations in nice neighborhoods, then all of a sudden people say, oh, my gosh, crime is a problem. Well, it's been a problem for the people in the poor communities for years, and it's getting worse over there. But you just don't know it because you're not in those communities. Maybe it takes more crime in Jen Psaki's neighborhood and uh, some of these other people's neighborhoods for people to wake up to realize that there's a problem that needs to be solved.
1: Yeah, I don't wish more crime on anybody. I just wish we would come to our senses. And I wish our politicians weren't a bunch of virtue signaling putzes who didn't care about the well-being of their constituents and instead made garbage up about, you know, spent mm-hmm. all of their time worrying about fake voting issues. And uh, anyway, la, la, yeah. but,
0: Danny's making <laughs> full use of our explicit rating in this podcast, just to give I know. you a warning.
1: I, know, it just, <laughs> just, it's it's up. I want to introduce our great guest. But first, I want to remind everybody, last week, we told you we have a new substack, which you can find at What the Hell is Going On one word, .substack.com, where we describe our podcast. We pull out the highlights from our transcript, from what our guest has said. We give you our show notes for the show. That's all the research that goes into everything that Mark and I talk about during the podcast. And we'd be really happy if you would subscribe, like it, subscribe to the podcast, like that, share it with your friends. Hey, like right now,
0: hit the subscribe button right now before we go to our guest, <laughs> please. We ask you. <laughs>
1: Exactly, do what Mark said for once.
0: And one other thing, if you've noticed that we have the slightly less precise sound quality, It's because we're not in our studio today. We've gone back to our COVID uh, Zoom podcasting uh, routine because Danny is with the Kangaroos and Crocs in Australia for a brief visit to her homeland. So if you notice, her accent is a little bit more lilty, a few more crikeys in her words, and a little bit more shaky on the Zoom. That's why. We'll be back in the studio next week. So we apologize in advance for the sound quality.
1: Yes. We'll all go and put another shrimp on the barbie, But to our guest... (laughs) (laughs) Rafael Mangal is a senior fellow and head of research for the Policing and Public Safety Initiative at the Manhattan Institute, and he's a contributing editor of City Journal. Most importantly, his first book, Yay, first book, Criminal Injustice, is going to be available in July 2022. We'll put a link into the transcript and up on the Substack so that you can pre-order it. He's authored, co-authored a number of reports and op-eds on issues about urban crime, jail violence, and criminal and civil justice reform. You've seen his work in The Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, New York Times. He's really, he's, he's a great authority, but he's also just a really thoughtful proponent of a more sane approach to criminal justice reform.
0: Here's our interview. Raphael, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks so much for having me. Real pleasure to be here. So
0: we're glad to have you. So, you know, we, we just saw the news that 12 major U.S. cities broke homicide records, many of which had been set the previous year. There's uh, carjackings galore happening all over the country. People are afraid to uh, walk down the streets of American cities. And we're told that this is all exaggerated, that the crime wave isn't as bad as you think. Is the crime wave as bad as we think?
2: Oh, it is, it is, for a lot of different reasons. I mean, you pointed out one, which is that you know, it really kind of depends on where you live. In some places, it's as worse as it's ever been, right? Philadelphia just set its all-time homicide record that beats including the 90s and the 80s. Lots of cities who didn't break their records are flirting with those numbers. I mean, I think you'd have to go back to 1995 or 1996 to see national homicide numbers like we saw in 2020. And I think you'd have to go back to about the same period for Chicago to see its homicide numbers at the level that they're at now. So, you know, to say that that crime isn't as bad or it's not a real issue, I think really just doesn't fully appreciate the reality of crime concentration in the United States, right? I mean... We don't really have an American crime problem or even a, you know, a New York crime problem or Chicago crime problem. Crime has always been concentrated in particular places at particular times. And to suggest that because you happen to live in a safe place, you know, as Chen Saki just did on an interview <laughs> criticizing Fox News' coverage of the issue, you know, doesn't mean that everyone else is kind of enjoying that same level of safety. And so that's one problem with it. But the other problem with it is the one that you just touched on, Mark, which is that lots of cities are actually seeing crime numbers that are the worst that they've been on record.
1: Raphael, thank you for being with us. I want to talk about victims of crime during the podcast, but I want to start somewhere else just because the visuals for me for this event were so devastating. On Friday, January 21st, two young NYPD officers, Jason Rivera, 22 years old, Wilbert Mora, 27 years old, were both fatally shot in the line of duty. They're not the first cops to be shot this year. They're not the first NYPD cops to be shot this year. The show of police for their funeral was so moving. But the reality is that their death was emblematic of terrible things that have been happening in New York, and I think are reflective of what are happening in a lot of other big cities. Talk a little bit about Rivera and Mora. You reflected beautifully on them in a couple of op-eds. What's happening here?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, let's start with the nature of the call. They were responding to a domestic violence call placed by the murder suspect's mother. There's been a lot of talk in recent months and in the last couple of years, really, about diverting more responsibility away from police officers to social workers or mental health responders. And I've actually heard some people suggest that, you know, maybe had that happened in this particular case, that these two officers would still be alive. But here's the reality. They answered that call on a Friday night and police really are the only municipal workers that are on call 24-7, when a lot of these disputes happen, when a lot of these people find themselves in crises, there is no other force that could handle over 100,000 calls a year for domestic violence or mentally disturbed individuals. So we have to start from that premise, that police are going to be the ones responding. The other idea that's been mentioned a lot in the last couple of years is that police need to do a better job of de-escalating situations. And one of the things that I always find is that when you look at some of these use of force cases, it's very rarely the case that police actually have the opportunity to successfully implement their de-escalation training. I mean, Rivera and Moore were walking down the hallway, a narrow hallway, before they even got a chance to make contact with the suspect they were opened up on. So that's another reality. And then when you talk, just, you know, you mentioned that this is kind of something that seems to be happening around the country. I think you're right. The suspect here has a long criminal history. It was reported that he was out on probation at the time of this murder. This is something that we see in almost every serious crime that makes the news that gets reported. Every time there's a suspect whose name comes out, almost inevitably that person has, five, 10, 20 prior arrests, they're out on bail, they're out on probation, they're out on parole, they've been in and out of jail since they were teenagers. What that tells us is that the system is failing on a massive level to hold accountable and to incapacitate dangerous actors. When you see a murder suspect who has seven or eight prior arrests and four or five prior convictions, what that tells you is that the police are doing a relatively good job of identifying who the problems are. But it also tells you that the system more broadly is failing to do its part to keep those people off the streets. And if you systematically lower the transaction costs of criminality, you're going to get more criminality. And I think that's what a lot of American cities are experiencing right now.
0: So, Officer Rivera's wife specifically called out uh, Manhattan's new district attorney, Alvin Bragg, during her eulogy for her husband, which was just absolutely heartbreaking to listen to. Talk a little bit about how the prosecutors are failing and some of these misguided policies that they are implementing, not just in New York, but in other cities across the country.
2: So, yeah, so the progressive prosecutor issue, and I use scare quotes around progressive because I don't think the approach is particularly progressive, but it's an issue that's formed under the radar for far too long. And I think it's important for Americans to understand where it came from. And I think it kind of traces back to 2014 and the killing of Michael Brown by Darren Wilson, a former police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. There was a lot of anger directed at Robert McCullough, who was the local prosecutor in St. Louis County, for not pursuing criminal charges against Darren Wilson as a result of that shooting. That incident was followed by the death of Eric Garner in police custody here in New York City in Staten Island, which was another case that prosecutors refused to pursue criminal charges on. Then there was Timmy Rice, his shooting in Cleveland, where, again, prosecutors chose not to bring charges. I, I think what a lot of people thought was that, more attention needed to be paid to prosecutors' offices because that was the way that you could hold police accountable. And so in Ferguson, St. Louis County in particular, you saw Wesley Bell challenge Robert McCullough, a multi-time incumbent, and successfully beat him in a primary. And that campaign was built almost entirely around the Michael Brown case. Ooh, As by the first-
0: way, well, wasn't it found that Michael Brown did in fact attack the police officer and that the That's uh, exactly right. Was right?
2: <laughs> that's exactly right. So not only did Robert McCullough's office make a choice not to bring criminal charges because of the outcome of their investigation, but then the Obama DOJ came in and came to a similar conclusion, finding in a widely published report that the shooting was in fact justified. But Wesley Bell promised to reopen the investigation if he was elected. He was, and he did reopen the investigation. And then a couple of years later, closed it again without filing charges. And so, you know, I, I do think that's important to note. But after that victory came out. I think a lot of political actors, a lot of funders realized that there was a lot of potential for reform that you could achieve without the arduous political process. And so you started to see a lot more money get thrown into these races, which are often, you're talking about down-ballot contests that in some places happen in off-cycle elections that don't get a lot of attention. And what I think the left realized was that rather than spend all this money lobbying lawmakers to make changes, they could just elect one person and have that person unilaterally abrogate entire bodies of law that they don't like or upend charging decisions or upend sentencing practices. And that's really the way this has kind of taken shape. So the movement because it flew under the radar, really enjoyed a lot of electoral success in its early years. And we're now living at a point in which almost 50 million Americans now are living in jurisdictions with self-described progressive prosecutors. And what I mean by that, I mean prosecutors who have outlined broad declination policies, policies that basically outline lists of offenses that they won't pursue criminal charges on, policies that relate to charging decisions whereby, as in the case of Alvin Bragg, ADAs are being instructed to pursue lower level charges, even in cases where felons any charges might be appropriate. Lots of other DAs like George Gascon out in California, for example, are systematically choosing to take sentencing enhancements off the table. Eric Gonzalez in Brooklyn, affirmatively supporting parole bids for cases that went through that office. So the basic mission of the progressive prosecutor movement is really best understood as a mission to achieve decarceration on a mass scale. And it's been working. The incarcerated population in this country has been going down for over a decade and it went down very sharply in 2020. Some of that had to do with the pandemic. decisions made about trying to stem the tide of COVID-19 in carceral facilities. But, you know, it's really been an important lever in the criminal justice policy debate. And I think it's having a real impact. I mean, if you look at cities like Philadelphia, Baltimore, Chicago, Houston, these are all places that have seen their crime numbers go up after these prosecutors have been elected. Now, I think it would be unfair to but that entire problem on the lap of the progressive prosecutors in those jurisdictions, I mean, we'd have to do a really careful analysis to assess the degree to which those actors are responsible, but they're certainly not helping by lowering the transaction cost of criminal behavior. When you leave these high rate criminal offenders out on the street, they're going to do what they do. And that is re-effect. The idea that we can just move people out of the criminal justice system without any public safety impact is just misguided beyond belief. And it's not... It doesn't really have any connection to the data. I mean, people like Bragg like to point to you know a handful of studies showing, for example, that there is a positive relationship between incarceration and recidivism for some people. There are a few of those studies that were cited explicitly in Alvin Bragg's memo. The problem with those studies are, as informative as they are, is that that's not the average prisoner. That's not the average jail inmate. So people like Alvin Bragg and other reformers in the space, they are generalizing from a body of literature to a population that you can't generalize that body of literature to. Right? For the average prisoner in the United States, for every year they're incarcerated, we are avoiding, say, eight or nine index felonies. That's a lot. And that's a big incapacitation benefit to give up on, on a massive scale, which is what they're calling for. And that's the essence of the mass incarceration critique, is that we need a mass decarceration effort to correct it.
1: Okay, there's so much to talk about here, including issues about incarceration. And our colleague Nick Eberstadt has done great, great work on this. But before we talk about crime, and I want you to talk very specifically about what's happening city by city by city, I want to talk about Who the victims of crime are, because like everything in our country, there is a racial tinge, I'd say not even tinge in this instance, but positive overlay in the discussion. Right. When we talk about George Floyd, when we talk about any of these cases, we are generally talking about questions of black men. Black men being incarcerated, Black men being convicted, Black men committing crimes. So in one of your pieces, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, but maybe not. The statistics are quite notable, right? Every year in New York, for more than a decade straight, at least 95% of shooting victims have been Black or Hispanic, right? That's the victims. In other words, this is much less a problem for white people. This is a big problem for people who live in poorer neighborhood, for people who live in more marginalized communities. Nationally, black men are more than 10 times more likely than their white counterparts to be the victims of a homicide. There was another statistic. I'm not going to find it fast enough. But when the crime rate and the murder rate went down after the 1990s, it added about 013 to the life expectancy of younger white men and a full year to the life expectancy of young black men. It seems to me that if you are in a community that cares about minorities, that thinks if I can coin a phrase that black lives matter, law enforcement and bringing down crime levels should be one of the most important priorities you have. So let's talk a little bit about these statistics and where crime happens and some of the other flaws in the whole concept of depolicing, decarceration and everything else. Sorry, that was a long question. I know it is a
2: big issue and I appreciate you bringing those data points into the discussion. It's always nice to know that what I put out there actually gets read at some point. So yeah, I mean, crime is not equally distributed phenomena. There are few, if any, equally distributed phenomena in this country or in any country for that matter. Your typical American city we'll see about 50% of crime concentrate in about 5% of street segments. For violent crime specifically, you're talking about 3 to 4% of street segments seeing about 50% of all violent crime. That's certainly true in New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, city after city, you name it. There's a criminologist named David Weisberg. He's coined this term, the rule of crime concentration. Now, we know it's geographically concentrated. We also know, as you pointed out, it's demographically concentrated. One of the reasons that I focus so heavily on those disparities is because, as you hinted in the formation of your question, there is so much attention paid to racial disparities in the enforcement outcomes, things like arrest rates, stops and frisks, incarceration rates. And those statistics are seized upon to make the argument that low-income minorities bear the brunt of the costs associated with law enforcement. And that is true as far as it goes. But what gets left out of the conversation far too often is that they also enjoy disproportionately, to the same degree, the benefits of law enforcement. And we know, for example, that adding police to the beat reduces crime. Study after study after study shows that when you add more police officers to a given geographical area, crime will go down in that geographical area. The presence of police officers is in and of itself an effective deterrent. Now. We also know that hiring a single police officer will abate 0.1 homicides over the course of that officer's career, which means that for every 10 officers you hire, you are saving one life at the very least. That benefit is actually enjoyed disproportionately, again, by Black Americans. It's a paper, I think the lead author of the paper was Aaron Chelf, and I may be wrong about that. I know he was one of the authors. I don't know if he was the lead author. But it looked at the effect of adding a new police officer to crime and who kind of disproportionately enjoys that benefit. And it's Black communities that benefit the most. And one of the reasons that I linked to that paper by Patrick Sharkey, who's a decarceration advocate himself, is that I think it just so strongly makes the case that we cannot... At the same time, claim to represent the interests of black and brown communities in the United States and call for the abolition of police for broad scale decarceration, for broad scale depolicing, because it's those communities that stand to lose the most it really is one of the most kind of frustrating things because I consistently see a lot of these calls for radical changes and reimagining police, et cetera, coming from well-to-do people living in nice neighborhoods who would never dare to step foot in a project in Brownsville after midnight, right? Like, you know, these are neighborhoods that these individuals will drive through at high speeds if they can't avoid them. And yet they're so willing to impose this kind of risk on those communities. And I don't think it's out of malice. I think it's genuinely out of ignorance. I think. People have sincerely come to believe that the stories that they've been told about racial disparities in enforcement require a radical response, but they haven't engaged with the nuance. They haven't engaged with the context, right? I mean, take police use of force, for example. How many times do you turn on the news and you see a tragic viral incident just get 24, 36, 48 hours of wall-to-wall coverage because it sort of fits this narrative that police are racist and are trigger happy, et cetera. But the reality is, is that you ask the average American, they have no idea that 99% of arrests are affected without the use of any force whatsoever and that in 98% of the cases in which force is used, there's no injury, right? I mean, police actually use lethal force in maybe 0.03 or 003% of all arrests. You're talking about 700,000 officers making 10 million arrests a year and only fatally shooting about a thousand people, almost all of whom were armed and dangerous at the time. Of course, police are gonna make mistakes. Of course, they are imperfect. Policing is a human endeavor. No human is perfect. But when you live in a country with 330 plus million people, almost all of whom have a camera phone, it's very, very easy to make a very rare occurrence seem incredibly common. And I think that's what's driving a lot of these misguided policy decisions. That's what's got conservatives on their back foot on this issue, I think, over the last few years. And what I've just seen from the history is that ultimately what it takes is for things to get worse before they get better, because people have to feel like they have a stake in the outcomes of these debates before they start to reconsider their priors. And again, unfortunately, a lot of the loudest voices in the activist crowd just aren't intimately familiar with what it's like to live in a truly high crime community, with what it's like to be you know, a high school student and worry about what color you wear to school. People pretend like the number one concern for these kids is walking to school and not being molested by the police. But the reality is they're probably 10 times more worried about the local gangbanger. And until we recognize that on a massive scale, and until that makes its way into the more kind of academic and public intellectual debate, I think we're kind of stuck with this trend for a little while.
0: So in the wake of the George Floyd incident, which is one of those incidents that has gotten that wall-to-wall coverage and had a real huge impact dozens of cities across the country defunded the police, either directly by cutting police budgets or indirectly by using retirements and resignations and just not filling empty positions and pocketing the money, right? So now you're starting to see some of the defund the police advocates who are responsible for major cities, like the mayor of San Francisco, suddenly wanting to refund the police. But you've written that refunding the police isn't necessarily the full solution, that there's other problems. Talk to us about that.
2: Yeah. So of course, police funding is important. Adding more police to the beat is important. The research shows that that's going to reduce crime. But that research comes from analyses done at a time in which the rest of the criminal justice system was on the same page. Now we live in a very different time. In addition to dozens of cities defunding the police in the wake of the George Floyd incident, you had dozens of states and cities and the federal government proposing, and in a lot of cases passing and enacting pretty radical reforms to how those jurisdictions are policed and to how crime is punished in those jurisdictions. So you can add police to the beat and that's great and it'll leave you better off than where you were without those cops. But if the system is going to continuously release people, if the system is not going to pursue serious charges and long periods of incarceration against bad actors who are at a high risk of reoffending, then we're going to be stuck with a good portion of that problem. And that was what I was getting at in that piece. I mean, you know, take a city like New York at the state level, you've had state level bail reform, state level discovery reforms, which really raise the transaction costs of criminal prosecutions. You've got raised the age, which made it almost impossible to prosecute a 16 or 17 year old in adult criminal court, which means that their cases are going to be diverted and oftentimes to family court, or even if they stay in criminal court to the youth part, where they're just much less likely to get really serious consequences. You've got the closing of Rikers Island and capping the new jail system at 3,300 people, despite the fact that the city has 8 million people. I mean, reform after reform after reform, all of that really changes the landscape. Right. You can't do all of that and then simply add a few dozen more cops to your state payroll and solve the problem. We have fundamentally changed the criminal justice system in this country, state after state, city after city. That can't just be undone with refunding the police. The police do a good job by and large, but their efforts need to be backed by prosecutors. They need to be backed by judges. They need to be backed by parole boards that are all playing the same game. Now we live in a time in which these institutions are working at cross purposes.
0: And they need to be backed by the American people. I mean, one of the problems we have is that Even if you put more police on the streets, if they don't feel that the public has their back and the country has their back when they get into it, the presumption is if there's an incident that the police officer did something wrong and their lives can be ruined. We talked earlier about the police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. His life was absolutely destroyed and he did nothing wrong. How does that impact the willingness of our police to do their jobs? You know, if they're driving by a neighborhood and something looks wrong, do you pull over or not? Do you take that risk or not? Do you sense that police are pulling back?
2: Oh, and, and- I, absolutely. Not only do I sense that, but the research shows that. I mean, there have been a number of papers that have come out that have documented a real Ferguson effect that have shown when police feel like they are under fire, especially in the wake of a viral incident they are going to pull back because they want to minimize their risk. It's a genuine expression of fear. There's some people who like to sort of point to some of these statistics about police pullback and turn it back on cops and say, well, you know, you're just sort of taking your ball and going home and doing a disservice to the community that you're supposed to be serving. I don't think it's that. I think it's a genuine expression of real fear, justifiable fear. I think these officers feel like if something goes wrong, If I make a sincere mistake in the field, not only am I not going to get the benefit of the doubt, but people are going to purposefully assassinate my character. That's not irrational in 2022. That wasn't irrational in 2020. That wasn't irrational in 2016. And I think we're not just seeing it take shape and have an impact on the ground for people who are already on the job as police officers. but We're also seeing it with respect to the decision of whether or not to become a cop in the first place. Lots of cities around the country, their police agencies have been reporting for quite some time, even before 2020, that they are having real trouble retaining and recruiting high level talent. Why is that? Well, because we've demonized this profession. I have a little bit of a personal story to tell here. When I was in my last year of college, I took the LSAT and the NYPD exam in the same week. And I got a perfect score on the NYPD exam. And I got my hiring letter for the NYPD around the same time I got my law school acceptance letters. And I had a real decision to make. And I asked my father, who's a retired NYPD detective, whether or not I should become a cop, what he thought. And I told him I was really considering it and wanted his perspective. He basically threatened to never talk to me again if I became a cop. And this is 2012 at the time when I got the hiring letter. He was making the same arguments that you hear now, back then. And he retired in 2004 saying, what's going to happen if you've got seven years on a job that's given you a skill set that doesn't translate to any other kind of career? And you get caught on video in a fight with a perk that doesn't look good. What are you going to do then if you lose your pension or if you get prosecuted criminally, even if you successfully defend yourself? Now you're broke. He said, I didn't work as hard as I did and take all the crap that I took on the force for you to do the same job. I want you to work in an office, wear a suit, carry a briefcase, and have people call you sir, he used to say. And when you think about it, it really is kind of sad. I mean, for a career cop to talk to his son that way about following in his footsteps. It used to be that people took pride in that because it was a noble profession, it was seen as a noble profession. But I think we've eroded that sense in the American psyche, and I think it's showing in who becomes a cop. And the ironic part is, is that it's going to have kind of a perverse impact because as people with options, right, people who have college degrees, master's degrees, law degrees, you know, higher IQs, more psychologically stable dispositions, et cetera. If they choose not to become police officers and choose to pursue other career paths because it just strikes them as too high risk, what's ultimately going to happen is the delta between the average cop and the average perp is going to shrink and you're going to have worse outcomes. That's not what we want. I don't think that's what anyone wants. And so I really do think we need to think carefully as a nation about how we talk about these issues, about what the impact is of public language on the sort of morale of these forces. Because... We need them. We need police for cities to thrive, cities in particular.
1: It's a heartbreaking story, and it's an especially heartbreaking story in a city like New York, where 20 years ago, after 9-11, the first responder community, NYPD, the fire department, those guys were rightly held up on our shoulders as heroes, who disproportionately gave their lives in order to protect others when we were attacked and boy has the worm turned. I do think there's a holistic story here. I hate that word. Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to do it in, in- no, it's a good work. word. <laughs> but look, I mean, what we have is we have in a lot of these instances, we have black young men okay, who are committing crimes. They are being let out after misdemeanors and minor felonies, shoplifting. Data is conclusive that gateway crimes lead to larger crimes. They're being led out by the DAs in big cities like LA, San Francisco, New York, and other places. They go on to commit larger crimes, largely in their own community. You know, We can all feel sorry for the right aid guy, but the reality is they're much more likely to rob somebody, kill somebody, hurt somebody in their own community than they are on the Upper West Side. They go to jail. Eventually they go to jail. They do something bad enough. They kill somebody. They go to jail. They come out. And they've got nothing to do. Their life is ruined. We have tens of millions of ex-felons in this country and no way of tracking them, which is incredible. Nick Aberstead's done great work on this. No way of tracking them, no way of understanding, and no serious way of trying to reintegrate them into society in a productive way. I honestly don't understand where this spiral ends. If you have to sit down and you've got to give us a, you know, okay. Raphael is the king of the world. okay? What I say go. not the world. <laughs> <laughs> we could do worse. <laughs> we have done worse.
0: Or the King of uh, New York.
1: <laughs> let's make you just the King of New York because I don't want that job. There are some others I'm interested in, but you can be the King of New York. What are you going to do? Okay? We've got a new mayor in town. You're telling him exactly what to do. What do you do? How do you solve this problem?
2: Well, you know, I think he's already starting to do some of the right things, which is to use the bully pulpit to really put pressure on Albany and on people like Alvin Bragg to start doing their jobs. I think Albany has to reconsider some of the reforms that have been enacted in recent years, including bail reform, including Raise the Age. Just last week, some new data came out from the New York City Criminal Justice Agency showing that almost 50% of 16-year-olds who were diverted as a result of Raise the Age legislation went on to reoffend. Uh, That's a significant jump from the comparison period. We know that there's been an increase in the share of violent felony arrests constituted by people with open cases after bail reform. You know, I think we have to take this data and re-examine it. So that's number one, right, is use the bully pulpit and keep pushing to get these changes re-examined. As for people like Alvin Bragg, these declination policies really don't make sense. I mean, just to use your word, holistic, the policy basically reflects a misunderstanding. The misunderstanding is this, is that we can accurately predict the risk that someone is going to do something terrible by the nature of the crime for which they were arrested today. And that is wrong, right? Confusing an offense for an offender is wrong. The reality is, is that if we did a more holistic assessment of someone's risk, what we would find is that there's an enormous amount of overlap between people who commit low-level offenses and people who commit really serious offenses. There is no perp out there who just says, no, no, I'm only a shooter. That's all I do. I don't do drugs. I don't deal drugs. I don't steal. That's I don't funny. rob. I only shoot people. And vice versa. There are no people who just, you know, I only shoplift from CBS's. I don't do anything else. That's not how it works. There is a diversity in offending patterns. There's very little specialization in the criminal world, which means that we would do well to make these decisions on an individualized basis, I'm not saying that everyone who steals from CBS has to go into prison for 10 years. That would be ridiculous. That would be inefficient. But if you have somebody who has committed a low-level offense, but a holistic assessment of their profile indicates that, hey, this person's in the gang database, This person has gun arrests in their history. You know, a social network analysis shows that this person's one or two degrees removed from other people who have shooting histories. Well, hey, maybe let's take full advantage of the law here and try and get them off the street, at least for a weekend. And so I think there needs to be more of that. You know, I don't think you could talk about New York without talking about the mental health crisis. Uh, I take the subway all the time and basically one out of every two rides now, I'm, <laughs> I see somebody getting accosted by an aggressive panhand, you know, or, you know, I uh, saw someone light a crack pipe on the train the other day inside the train during a pandemic, actually lit a crack pipe. Oh my um, God. At my station here, there are constantly people using intravenous drugs on the platform. Dealing with that, I think, is going to require a rethinking of how we approach mental illness, addiction problems. You know, we have kind of moved away from the idea of inpatient care and institutionalization since the nineteen seventies. And there were some, you know, good arguments why there were problems in the system that existed back then. But I think that's another example where we threw the baby out of the bathwater. So you know I'm certainly not an expert in mental health or you know homelessness, but there are certainly smart people that I think the mayor should be listening to that make a really strong case for reprioritizing more and better supervision. That's certainly another part of it. I would also, you know, tell them to fight for more funding for the NYPD. The NYPD was a big beneficiary of the ninety-four crime bill and the provisions of that bill that gave cities more funding to hire more police officers. Wait,
1: do you mean do you mean the crime bill that President Joe Biden supported when he was <laughs> and defended
2: up until recently? That's right. <laughs> That's exactly what? right. On the
0: 94 crime bill, one of the things you've written is that the decline in homicides and violent crimes between 1990 and 2000 constitutes one of the greatest achievements in the history of urban America. The crime bill is certainly part of that. There were a lot of policies, both local and national, that led to that. My exit question is go back and look at that period. What lesson should we take of things that have been discarded from that period of time that we ought to bring back?
2: Certainly. I mean, recommitting to the idea that And not just to the idea, because it's not an idea, it is a fact. Recommitting to the fact of reflecting the fact that more cops means less crime in our official policy, right? So start there, hiring more police officers. And then what do those police officers do when they're on the beat? We know that when we use data to inform deployment strategies and to inform enforcement strategies, we can identify the places where crime concentrates and then undertake intelligence efforts to in those places identify who is driving the most serious kinds of crime. And make your enforcement decisions on that basis, build strong cases against your likely shooters, and then use sentencing enhancements to get them off the damn street for significant periods of time. I mean, the reason things like three strikes laws and truth in sentencing came about in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s and mandatory minimums was because the system was doing what it's doing again, which is discarding the potential benefits that we can realize through the incapacitation of bad actors in prison and in jail you know, again, we don't have to throw everyone behind bars and under the jail and throw away the key. That's not what we need to do. But the data do show that when you can identify people who are at a high likelihood of committing really serious crimes, you should get them off the street for as long as possible. And if you do that, you will give the communities that they would have otherwise stayed in the room to breathe and to grow. And that growth will ultimately insulate those communities from further crime. New York's a really great example of that. Look at the outer boroughs, right? If you look at the Bronx in the 1980s and 90s, there were entire city blocks with maybe one standing structure, vacant lots everywhere, dark streets, no small businesses with security cameras and no traffic density. All of that stuff facilitated violent crime in a myriad of ways. Once you got crime under control, you had investment, you had business growth, you had more population density, you had a bigger tax base to improve the physical environment, all of those things make crime less likely to happen. And it's one of the reasons that New York has kind of been a victim of its own success, because as it's become more resilient, and as its environment has made the city less vulnerable to serious crime increases, it's figured that it can get away with, you know, being unreasonable and careless on the crime policy front. I think that's the balance that we need to strike better.
1: Listening to this, it just feels like we do everything wrong. And The only thing that people care about is their desire to pat themselves on the back and congratulate themselves for being progressive lovers of black and brown people. But it seems to me that every one of these prosecutors, every one of these advocates for a change in these policies is actually a person responsible for the loss in quality of life in these communities and not the gain. Poll after poll. Shows that this is absolutely at the top of people's priorities at the top of people's priorities, notwithstanding the White House's misunderstanding of how the American people feel. I really hope that we can somehow affect a turnaround because it's great. we can sit here and feel good because the odds of us being you know involved in a crime are pretty low, but they're so getting the higher bottom, yeah they're getting higher, but they're still much lower than people in at risk communities. It's they who are the victims of these policies. It's they who are the victims of the progressives and their mistaken ideas about how to improve the situation. Rafael, thank you for the work you're doing. It's really terrific. I'm glad people are starting to listen to it. I hope people listen more. I hope Eric Adams listens. And then we need to move you to California where they need to listen even more. Sounds good. So thanks again for taking the time. No, thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Take care. So, Mark, what do you think about this?
0: So I want to pick up on something you talked about, about the person who has a terrible life, goes to jail, comes out, and there's no path for him back into society, right? There's a great organization in New York City that helps people like that called the Doe Fund that Arthur Brooks and I visited when he was writing his book, The Conservative Heart. And we met one of these guys. We were there and there was a guy who was working there with the Doe Fund. For people who don't know what the Doe Fund is, if you live in New York and you see the men in blue, guys who are picking up the trash off the streets, that's the Doe Fund. And what they do is they take a lot of people who are coming out of jail, have nowhere to live, have no work, and prevent them from becoming recidivists. They bring them in. They have a dorm where people live. They work for about six months cleaning streets. And then if they do that well, if they stay off drugs, don't engage in crime anymore, if they're successful, then they get training for some kind of a job. Some people do restaurant work, some do pest control, all the rest of it. And we met this one guy who had been in jail for murder. He was brought up in horrible conditions. He told us about how when he was like three or four years old, his parents used to blow marijuana smoke in his face to get him high, just to laugh while he stumbled around the house. Nobody ever cared about this guy. He committed a crime, went to jail, did his time, came out, joined the Doe Fund and swept the streets, decided to go into training to, to pest control. And he was working a job as a pest control person. And I asked him, are you happy? And he said, am I happy? And he pulled out this iPhone. And Arthur and I thought he was going to say, oh, look, I've got money now. I've got an iPhone. that." He said, no, he pulled up the iPhone and he said, this is a text message I got this morning from my boss. There's a bed bug problem on East 64th Street. I need you. And he said, In my entire life, no one had said those words to me before. I need you. This is the solution to this problem on the back end of this, where we need to find ways to reintegrate people in and keep them off the streets, keep them off of drugs, keep them from falling back into crime. And the model is the DOFA, it works in New York we should have do no funds in every city in America because it's just an incredible incredible organization that is solving the back end of this problem.
1: So, I love that story, and it doesn't matter how many times I hear it, I love it all the more because it's about solutions and the thing that, you know, I use this expression too often, but it fits so perfectly in so many things nowadays. Our crime policy, our criminal justice policy has come down to a desire to signal virtue to others. Sure, you robbed that mom and pop shop and you know stole a bunch of stuff and ruined their livelihood, but I'm not going to keep you in jail. I'm going to let you go out again because I know when I let you go out, you're going to do what? Oh, I don't care what you're going to do. I don't actually care about you. I care about telling people, What a great guy, prosecutor I am. This is what makes me so angry about it. Is the DOE fund goes out, looks for people, and tries to change their lives, tries to change their families' lives, tries to help the community, sets people on a different path for life. These prosecutors, they don't give a shit about the community. All they're doing is virtue signaling to their political constituency. They should all be ashamed of themselves
0: hundred percent. They're for decarceration, but they don't care what happens to the people after they're decarcerated. And- their
1: family, or their families or their communities. I mean, walk around San Francisco. It is a nightmare. I don't let my daughter get on the subway in New York because I'm worried about what's going to happen to her. These are terrible, terrible things to happen.
0: Yeah, we need to support the police on the front end. And we need solutions on the back end for the people who have done their time and are trying to reenter society. And the other thing, we didn't get the chance to talk about this, but one of the great uh, bipartisan accomplishments of the Trump administration was criminal justice reform, getting people who are nonviolent offenders out of prison. If you want to do that, and if you want public support for that, you can't do it during a crime wave, right? You can't make the argument for decarceration of nonviolent offenders when you have mass decarceration of violent offenders and when you have people on the streets carjacking and murdering and killing people left, right and center because the American people aren't going to support it. If you really want to help people who are the most likely to be rehabilitated, the nonviolent offenders, and you think that there's been an over-policing and an over-incarceration of those people, you can't do it If you don't get rid of the crime, it's just like, for it's the same problem we have with immigration, right? You and I both support legal immigration, and we'd love to have more immigrants coming into this country, especially when we have a labor shortage and people can't find workers. But you can't do that when the border's not under control, because there's not going to be any popular support for bringing more people in legally when we can't control our borders. So you have to control crime. You have to control the borders if you want to do good things for the country and
1: for society. Let's end on this really important note. Nobody condones police violence, police brutality. But police violence and police brutality are not the story about what policing is. (laughs) Exactly. Yep, there are some rotten apples. Yep, there's probably police departments with the wrong culture and the wrong leadership. But the vast mass of people who go into service, as Raphael said, are people who recognize that they are in service to the community. They're not people who are going in because it's a really cool way to have a gun. And you know, we really need to, we really need to, to, if I may use the word, police ourselves a lot more in the way we talk about things, because you acclimatize people to the notion that the bad guys are the good guys and the good guys are the bad guys, and the only people who pay the really high price for that are the victims. And we know where they are
0: hundred percent. And I would throw in, not only should we police ourselves about how we talk about them, but you know what, if you're in uh, Dunkin' Donuts and there's a police officer behind you in the line, pay for their cup of coffee, say, thank you, teach your kids to go up to a police officer and say, thank you for your service. Just like you would to a military service, men and women, these people have stepped forward to put on a uniform and keep us safe. And we should not only not be demonizing them, we should be expressing our gratitude for them every day for what they do.
1: I agree 100%. So go out there, listen to the podcast, subscribe, go and like our substack, go buy Raphael's excellent new book when it comes out and take good care of yourselves.
0: Take care, everyone. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehellatai.org
1: or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka, and I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this.
0: Thanks for listening.